Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for downloading and listening to our podcast. This is Fired Up, and I'm Steve. I host the podcast each week as we dive into what the political machine is doing here in the United States. Uh, and uh, because of what's going on, what's going on around the world. Uh, we're going to touch base on a lot of things happening uh, this show. So sit back, kick back, and uh, let's get into it. As always with this show, we start with a recap of where we are with the COVID virus because uh, contrary to what some people believe, uh, it's still here. It's still impacting this country. People are still dying. So we're up to uh, a little over 79 million cases. We've had 948,000 people who have died from the disease as we continue rolling toward that million person uh, milestone. I don't know what we're going to do when we get there, what it's going to mean or how it's going to impact. But that should give every one of us some level of pause to understand that a million people uh, sometime soon in the coming you know, weeks or months uh, will have died from this disease. That, that is something that you, you just need to take a minute and stop and think about. We also have uh, 550.5 million people who've been vaccinated and at least 67% um, have received one dose and nearly 60% uh, are fully vaccinated in the United States. So, you know, a- as I said, we're closing in on having uh, one million people uh, die from this disease. And, you know, that is a, a tragic milestone. It is a devastating milestone. That means that more than one million families and, you know, countless number of individuals in those families have lost someone to this pandemic. Uh, you know, you can you can argue and debate about, you know, who did what or should have done what. But the the uh, information has been out there. Uh, the vaccines have been out there and, you know, people just need to do the right thing, protect themselves, protect their families, protect their communities and help protect our country. So, you know, that that's ongoing. Uh, As you know, every show, we recap what's going on in the COVID realm. Um, I don't want to have this fade away like so many news stories do uh, to become something that's just background noise. So we lead off each show with a report on where we stand in the battle against the COVID pandemic. So in moving on and turning the page and getting into the the subjects that I want to talk about for the show today, uh, I'll start it off by asking a question. Uh, for 25 bonus points, who can tell me what happened on the 26th of February uh, 10 years ago? Uh, the, the answer, which I'll give for the interest of time, is on February 26th, 2012, uh, Kayvon Martin was killed walking home from the store with uh, a bottle of iced tea and some Skittles by George Zimmerman. 
Now, the tragic death of Trayvon Martin uh, was by no means the first. Uh, it, it's no means uh, been the last since then. Uh, it's just one in a continuing string of um, the, the shootings of uh, people of color, in particular African-American males. And, you know, by, by no means uh, did it represent the beginning of a trend or the, the middle of a trend. It's just an ongoing trend uh, of the death of uh, young black males in particular. Uh, and, you know, it does nothing else than to galvanize a movement. Uh, it was, you know, one of several events that occurred. Uh, you know, we can name Breonna Taylor. We can name uh, George Floyd. We can name so many others since Trayvon who have died, whether at the hands of civilian or law enforcement, uh, that, you know, it, it, we don't have enough time to go through and, and even detail the, the surface of all of the cases of uh, young people that have been killed either by violence uh, with civilians or violence at the hands of law enforcement. You know, there, there's more than enough to occupy a week-long podcast, never mind an hour-long one. But I talk about Trayvon Martin because, uh, as I said, it, he was not the first um, young black male to be gunned down um, nor uh, has he been the last. Uh, but something about the Trayvon Martin case 10 years ago seemed to strike a nerve that um, maybe hadn't been struck uh, before or maybe hadn't been struck that heavy or that hard before. But in some way, the, the death of Trayvon Martin at the hands of uh, George Zimmerman, uh, who thought he was acting as a security enforcement officer or some such, uh, just seemed to rub many people totally the wrong way. And I know I'm, I'm coming nowhere near uh, describing the emotion that that event generated, but you know, just for sake of argument, you can say that it rubbed a lot of people the very wrong way and it led to the the raising of consciousness it served as you know a call to action it served as a call to activism that led to the formation of groups and and uh, talking discussion uh, you know regarding things like the Black Lives Matter movement like other uh, awareness raising efforts that that happened after this young man was shot for no apparent reason other than he was walking home and had a bottle of iced tea and some Skittles. And by no means has it stopped there. Uh, just this past week, uh, three officers who stood by while uh, former police officer now convicted uh, uh, murderer Derek Chauvin kneeled on the neck of George Floyd for, you know, nine minutes and change until he died. 
and they did not do anything to stop him. They did not intercede in any way, and they were convicted of uh, violating George Floyd's uh, civil rights. We've seen cases where uh, you know officers have been arrested. Uh, in the case of Breonna Taylor, an officer wasn't arrested for the shooting of Breonna Taylor. However, one was arrested and tried for shooting through the wall into adjacent apartments, the, sort of defying the logic, but nonetheless uh, a, a serious offense and uh, potential dangerous situation that could easily have been avoided. We just had the conclusion of uh, a, a female officer who uh, thought she was drawing her taser and instead drew her gun and shot and killed a uh, young uh, male of color. Uh, that trial has just uh, concluded. So, you know, there, there just has been no end. But for some reason, as we mark 10 years since the death of Trayvon Martin, uh, that one, you know, seemed to be the, the proverbial straw that maybe um, started the, the breaking of the back of the patients of you know, the, the communities of color in this country. And that seemed to trigger, you know, as we talk about on this show, the calls to action and got people to practice activism and get engaged with uh, handling and with addressing the problems sitting at the root of actions like the action that took the life of Trayvon Martin or the action that took the life of Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or so many other people of color in this country. Uh, apparently, we have hit a, the tipping point and I think Trayvon Martin was that tipping point that, you know, the, the minority communities in this country collectively said enough is enough we are going to take action we are going to do something about this we are going to talk to someone about this we are going to elect people to do something about this and that is the the lesson that we need to take away from events as tragic as they may be we need to take that lesson that you know, every time something like this occurs, we need action, we need activism, we need to talk to somebody, we need to talk to people who can affect change, we need to elect people who can affect change, we need to address our political, our social, uh, and you know, leaders in our communities, in our states, and in our country to effect change. Now, you know, we look to our elected officials to act on these type of events on our behalf. You know, we do not want to have a society where we, you know, do the wild, wild west thing and go out and form a posse and go out and hunt people down and, you know, throw ropes over tree limbs and you get the picture going from there. No, that's, that's not what this country is about anymore. 
uh, news reports to the contrary. We can talk about that on, on another episode. But, you know, we need our leaders to take strong, effective action within our legal system, utilizing the laws that we have on the books now, uh, enacting new laws where they are needed, changing laws where that is needed, uh, and, you know, putting pressure on our elected and appointed officials to, you know, get back on the program that we want them to be on. Uh, if our you know, law enforcement agencies aren't properly enforcing the laws that we have, we need to work with the, the law enforcement leadership. We need to work with our district attorneys. We need to work with uh, our state and local uh, elected officials to make sure that laws are changed, that training is held, that information is passed on to law enforcement about what the expectations are for them when they're doing their job. Uh, kneeling on someone's neck for nine and a half minutes uh, is, is not in any police training course that, um, that we know of, that we are aware of. This was made clear during the trial of George Floyd. However, just because it's not in the training book, just because it's not in the rule book, doesn't mean it is not in the unofficial practice of what happens in the streets. So when we see that, we need to take action. One of the things that came out of the trial of the, the three officers who stood around while um, Derek Chauvin had his neck on uh, had his knee on George Floyd's neck, rather, excuse me, was it, it, you know, the realization that it wasn't just a matter of following the law. It was a matter of doing the humane thing. If you see someone, you know, hurting, choking, it, the, the humane thing to do is to intervene is to intercede, is to protect life. Even if it is a police officer, you, you have to intercede in that and make sure that we are doing the right thing. So one of the, the lessons that we learned uh, along the way, and perhaps the, the, the murder of Trayvon Martin, as I said, was that tipping point that made us aware and saying that enough is enough is that we need to exercise that higher authority. We need to exercise that humanity that says we cannot allow anyone to do this to another human being, period, full stop. So we will keep watch. We will keep bringing information forward. All right. Um, all right. Let's, um, let's shift gears because I do want to talk about some positive news that came out this past week. Uh, and, you know, that is a very, very uh, monumental announcement. Uh, it is one that gives hope in, in some ways for a better future for this country. So President Biden made history this week. Uh, on February 25th, President Joe Biden formally nominated Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson 
for the United States Supreme Court, uh, thus elevating an African-American woman to the, the highest court in the land for the first time in American history. Now, this is monumental news on, on many different levels. Obviously, uh, elevating an African-American female, uh, a black woman, to sit on the highest court in the land uh, while, you know, won't change the political calculus of the court. Um, it will change how the court views and responds to certain uh, types of cases. You know, just as uh, Judge Sotomayor uh, just as, you know, Judge Ginsburg, uh, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, every judge that comes on to the, to the, the Supreme Court gives a little added uh, flavor or inflection on certain types of cases that come before the court. Now, the expectation is that given the background of uh, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, should she be uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court, and we're going to talk about that process in a minute, um, she brings a history that includes uh, time spent as a federal public defender, uh, which is a first for the Supreme Court. Now, why is that important? Because at a federal level, at a federal uh, jurisprudence level, she was concerned and caring about the rights uh, and the law as it applied to everyday people. So having that perspective when judges are debating the merits of a case before them uh, is a, a new and very powerful tool that hopefully will shade, uh, well, let's, let's not say shade, will hopefully will inflect the decisions of the Supreme Court in, in you know, more toward uh, equal application of justice uh, in certain cases. Uh, time will tell and we will see. The first hurdle, obviously, is that she needs to be confirmed. And I want to make sure that we understand that uh, you and I, uh, the citizens of this, this country, we have a role to play in the confirmation of uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. We need to communicate with our, our senators, and particularly those of you whose senator happens to be a Republican. Uh, we need to make sure that we overwhelmingly let our Republican senators know what we believe should happen with the uh, nomination of Judge uh, Katinji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. Now, you know, I realize that there are some out there who are opposed to it. I, I fully understand that. And I say you need to let your, fear, your feelings be heard as well. But if, if you live in a state where one or both of your senators are Republicans, uh, and you know you're not. That still means you need to communicate to your senators. They still represent you, even if they are not in the same party as you. 
they are still bound by the law to represent every citizen in their state uh, equally. So it is, it is imperative that not only do we have a call to action to communicate to the Senate what our feelings are on the confirmation of you know, Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, uh, we also need to make sure that we are communicating that um, loudly you know, to our, our senators, that it gets all of their attention, that they are aware that this is what the, the public wants. This is what their constituents want. Um, and, you know, it, according to news reports, you know, she has uh, bipartisan support. She was appointed to the federal bench with bipartisan appoint, uh, uh, support by President Biden a little more than a year ago. Uh, she has she is not a stranger to the Republicans in the Senate. They have uh, vetted her on three separate occasions um, for positions in the legal system here in this country. Uh, according to the article uh, in ABC News, um, they quote, said, Jackson has been vetted and confirmed by the Senate three times, twice for appointments to the federal bench and a third time for a seat on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Uh, not since Justice Clarence Thomas was nominated in 1991 has a Supreme Court candidate been scrutinized by the Senate as many times. Um, you know, Senator Lindsey Lindsey Graham is quoted as saying uh, he thinks she is qualified for the job. She has a different philosophy than than I do. Senator Senator Graham is saying, but it's been that way the whole time. Uh, so. You know, it, it's it's clear that uh, by virtue of the vetting that she's received for a prior judicial appointments uh, and on her credentials, uh, which are, you know, and, and I don't want to overuse the word, but impeccable. I mean, she is highly qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. Um, so. You know, she's got all kinds of, of experience that she can draw upon. Uh, and, and the article in ABC News goes on to say, one of her most high-profile decisions came in the 2019 case of former White House counsel Don McGahn, who was contesting a congressional subpoena for testimony. Then District Court Judge Jackson wrote a 118-page ruling ordering McGahn to testify, concluding that presidents are not kings and could not assert universal executive priv privilege over former aides. So, you know, she is someone who has familiarity with the intricacies of the political system, obviously, and has, you know, no problem with weighing in as she sees fit. Um... You know, there are, are quotes uh, from Sanchi Kare, yeah, who clerked for Judge Jackson in 2019, that uh, said, quote, she believes the judiciary should be accessible and transparent, end quote. She really feels that people who come to the court or who interact with the judicial system 
whether they are civil or criminal parties, that they feel heard and that the court is considering their arguments. Uh, and that's something that, in, in at least my opinion, uh, is a refreshing breath of fresh air into the judicial system in this country. Many times we have seen what looks like you know, favoritism based on economic circumstance or circumstances of birth or you know who they are or what they are or who they're related to that seem to override the need for pure blind justice in so many cases uh, you know and and we've seen people convicted of things that you know just didn't seem to rise to the level of what should be uh, a, a conviction worthy crime and we've also seen People um, walk out of a courtroom where, you know, clear evidence seemed to show that there was a sufficient level of guilt to warrant a guilty verdict. So, you know, that that openness and transparency, even at the level of the Supreme Court, which is noted for um, being behind a, a wall of invisibility, even though we can hear them. I mean, you can go to the Supreme Court's website and hear the, the verbal transcripts of their cases each week at the end of the week uh, for cases that they have already heard. Um, but unlike, you know, uh, unlike Senate hearings or House hearings, C-SPAN doesn't have cameras set up in the, the Supreme Court building and doesn't bring us, you know, live real-time reporting on you know what the judges are doing uh, in most cases the best we get is a time delayed uh, and an edited version uh, at you know at a later time after an event has occurred but but I digress getting back to um, judge Brown Jackson so the the idea that uh, she brings a fresh but studied perspective to the Supreme Court uh, is, as I said, a welcome breath of fresh air and, and sunlight that I think the court needs to have a part of it. Uh, it. It's clear that the Supreme Court has felt the influences of uh, Justice Sotomayor, of um, you know, e even Justice Clarence Thomas, who is not the most talkative uh, Supreme Court justice on the bench, uh, his influence and his impact uh, has been noticed and felt over the years that he's been sitting on the bench. Uh, you know, and you know, as you look at the history of the Supreme Court, there have been a number of justices who came and left a mark on the Supreme Court. You know, we, we talk about... Um, you know, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We talk about um, Justice Antonin Scalia. You know, there are judges uh, or justices that have come through the Supreme Court that have, in fundamental ways, um, altered the tenor of the court, altered the, the, the direction of the court, and, you know, gone beyond just a political realm to a style uh, of... of judgment that uh, changed for their presence on the bench. So, as I said, 
our call to action. We need to communicate with our senators if, you know, if we are in favor of her confirmation, then we need to communicate to our senators, particularly our Republican senators. If we are opposed to her confirmation, we need to communicate that as well. The most important thing is that our senators need to know that we are watching and that we are listening. So whether you are in favor of or opposed to the confirmation of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the United States Supreme Court, reach out to your, your senators in Washington, D.C. and let them know how you feel. And just so you know, we're, we're clear and you don't think I'm not paying attention, um, this week uh, culminated a month-long escalation of tensions between Russia and Ukraine. And Russia has crossed the border into Ukraine, uh, essentially invading that country, seeking to, among other things, annex it back into being a part of Russia. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the motives that Russian President Vladimir Putin has for, um, for engaging in this invasion of Russia. Some, some are arguing that it's for you know, economic or material reasons. Others are for access to additional warm water ports for Russian shipping. Uh, and there are some who strongly believe that Vladimir Putin has as a goal to reconstruct the former Soviet Union by recollecting all of the breakaway republics that were created when that country um, broke up back in the, the early 80s. Um, whatever reason there are, you know, Ukrainian uh, citizens who are being hurt, injured, or killed as a result of this attack. There are Russian soldiers who have been killed uh, in uh, conducting the attack. There has been uh, some widespread destruction of Ukrainian property. Uh, you know, war, war is, is always a, a terrible thing. It always has casualties both um, physical as well as human. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts with it. Uh, the, the world has, uh, for the most part, uh, condemned the invasion. Uh, the European Union and NATO are uh, fighting against uh, the, the invasion. Uh, and, you know, both economically and materially, they are supporting Ukraine in its struggle against uh, its much larger and, and much more powerful neighbor. Um, but just to be clear, in some small ways, uh, there have been news coming out of Ukraine where uh, the Russian efforts may have bogged down a little bit. Uh, they, they have run into significant and substantial resistance from the Ukrainian military and security forces and from the U Ukrainian citizens. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's something we've seen before. Um, when you try and invade and take someone's home, 
They are going to fight with a, a next-level tenacity. And this is what we're seeing in Ukraine. So we, we will keep an eye on it. Uh, but you know, there, are, there are tons of media sources all over the spectrum who are, are covering it. Um, and you know, there, there's a lot to dive into. Uh, if there are any you know, news events that you know, seem to be getting short coverage, we will see about bringing it to you. Um, but we will defer to the, the sources on the ground in Ukraine for the information that we're getting about that conflict. Um, I want, speaking of conflict uh, and, and pivoting kind of radically, so how, how many of you remember the fact that under the uh, American Rescue Plan, there was monies that were put aside for rent and mortgage payments to help people who were out of work due to COVID and uh, were facing, you know, mounting rent bills or mortgage bills and, and possible evictions. Well, you know, there were protections put in place to prevent landlords from evicting tenants who were impacted by the COVID pandemic. Uh, a lot of that has uh, subsided. Uh, and what we are seeing uh, is something that you know, we've mentioned on this show that just because you are receiving protections from the government doesn't mean that your rent payments or your mortgage payments aren't still accruing. And when the pandemic has passed, that you are going to be responsible for those payments. Well, what we are seeing is that some uh, tenants and, and homeowners are still about to be evicted. And you know, this comes from an article that was in a American again, Associated Press, excuse me, uh, and it came out uh, a couple of weeks ago in, in February. So it, it talks about uh, people who were uh, about to be evicted, uh, even though that they had been awarded rental assistance. Uh, there was one uh, lady in Atlanta. Uh, she heard that she'd been awarded about $15,000 in rental assistance. Uh, and, you know, that allegedly or supposedly relieved uh, her, her anxiety from the fact that her landlord was looking at evicting her from her apartment. Um, but what she heard next was that they, she got a letter from her landlord last month saying the company was canceling her lease in March, seven months early, without any explanation. Uh, she says, and quote, I'm really pissed about it. I thought I would be comfortable again back in my home. And, you know, she works as a hair, hairdresser. And, you know, obviously with the pandemic, uh, you know, contact, distancing and all of that basically shut her, her business down. Um, you know, and now she's still facing the place uh, where she has received an agreement for funds from the government, but she's still going to be evicted. Uh, and, you know, the article, as I said, is in the AP News uh, website uh, that the $46.5 billion emergency rental assistance program has paid out tens of billions of dollars to help avert eviction crisis. 
Some tenants, like King, who received help are finding themselves threatened with eviction again, sometimes days after getting federal help. And many are finding it nearly impossible to find another affordable place to live. As you may be aware, the housing market is extremely tight. Prices are going up. Rents are going up. Inflation is impacting you know, everything, including rents. Uh, and you know, it, it is just a rough situation to potentially be uh, in the middle of and facing eviction from where you're living. So, you know, one of the things that was observed here about the uh, the housing program is, you know, it's we're saying it's not solving the underlying problem, which is a lack of affordable housing. People are on the hook for rents they cannot afford to pay. Simply finding something cheaper is not an option because there is not anything cheaper. People have to be housed somewhere. So the National Housing Law Project, in a survey last fall of nearly 120 legal aid attorneys and civil rights advocates, found that 86% of respondents reported cases in which landlords either refused to take assistance or accepted the money and still moved to evict tenants. The survey also found a significant increase in cases of landlords lying in court to evict tenants and illegally locking them out. Natalie Maxwell, who's a senior attorney with the uh, National Housing Law Project, uh, describes the problems as being, you know, uh, a number of issues could be described as issues related to landlord fraud and a set of problems I would describe as loopholes within the program that made it less effective to accomplish the goal, she said. The National Apartment Association president and CEO, uh, Bob Pinagar, said the survey was not based on facts, adding that its members are doing everything they can to keep tenants in their homes, including lobbying to get rental assistance out faster. Uh, he's saying that skewed surveys, and this is a quote, skewed surveys aren't reflective of the entire situation. By and large, the rental housing industry has gone to great lengths to support residents, including when it comes to rental assistance and adherence to laws and re regulations. And uh, this was according to a statement released by you know, Bob Prenegar, the uh, CEO of the National Apartment Association. Um, but when you talk to legal aid attorneys, uh, they confirm they're seeing a steady increase in cases where tenants were approved for rental help and still faced eviction. And they cite cases, uh, including one of a mother of a newborn and two children in Florida who received rental assistance but was ordered evicted after the landlord refused to take the money. Another Florida landlord lied in court saying she hadn't received the money in a bid to push through an eviction. Uh, there have been cases in Georgia and Texas where landlords who received assistance moved to end leases early, increased rents to unaffordable levels, or found other reasons than non-payment to evict someone. So, you know, in other words, working around the system. Surprise, surprise. Um, you know, and this, this again, is something where 
we have to look at this through the lens of a humane individual. You have a mother with a newborn child and two other in, uh, children, young children. Um, how, you know, how cruel is it to evict them? And I, I get it that, you know, if, if there is a reason, you know, other than pandemic that they haven't been paying a rent. But if the opportunity is there for you to receive monies from the federal government to make you whole and you still go forward and evict this family, what is that saying about you as a human being? Uh, I'm just saying. So, you know, part of our, our, our call to action is we need to look around our neighborhoods, look for these cases uh, of injustice that are occurring right under our noses. And, you know, let's do something about those. You know, we talk about the national uh, issues. We talk about the state issues. We also need to be talking about the local issues. We need to be uh, our brothers and sisters keepers at the local level just as much as we are at the state and federal level. So we'll keep an eye. We'll call out for activism. We'll call out for action uh, as these, these cases progress and as information comes to us. So changing gears a little bit, um, it, it has been well established that uh, there is not a requirement for someone to be a lawyer to hold uh, an elected office. Uh, it just seems that perhaps it's because of the need for familiarity with the legal system and the rules of laws and, and so forth that um, being a lawyer uh, is, is helpful when you are a politician. But there's no rule that says you have to have a legal background even to be a justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, there's no rule that says you have to be a lawyer in order to be president. Uh, hence, you know, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. Um, there is no law that says you have to be a lawyer to be a senator or a congressman in Washington. And, you know, we have uh, here in the state I live in, in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, we have a candidate for the Senate uh, that I arguably would say everybody is familiar with across the country. Uh, his name is Mehmet Oz. You probably know him better as Dr. Oz, uh, either from the Oprah Winfrey shows or his own uh, TV shows and, and podcasts and, and so forth. Well, uh, Mehmet Oz, and, and they have moved away from calling him Dr. Oz. They, uh, the media is referring to him by his first name. Uh, Mehmet Oz uh, is running for uh, the Senate seat here in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, to be clear, he is a medical doctor. He is a heart surgeon. Uh, he also is a TV celebrity. Um, and, you know, uh, is an intelligent uh, gentleman. So, and, and as I said, there's no preclusion against someone uh, coming from any particular background to be a, a congressman, to be a senator. Uh, in fact, that's the way the founders intended it, that ordinary civilians would step up 
to you know go and you know govern the country for a, a period of time and then return to their private lives so you know it it's it's not unusual it's not news that he is an entertainer we have had several senators uh, who came out of the entertainment field uh, Sonny Bono um, the uh, Al Franken from the former Saturday Night Live you know and so forth there have been many people who were uh, in the entertainment business before they went into the politics business uh, and, and it is not that um, you know the the campaign of Mehmet Oz is you know causing controversy for the fact that he is a TV celebrity. Uh, I will say it's causing controversy for the fact that uh, he is a longtime resident of the state of New Jersey and only a recent uh, resident of the state of Pennsylvania, uh, and so he is getting a lot of criticism for being a carpetbagger and. For you younger people who don't know what that means, it means someone who moves into an area to run for a political office, never having lived for any length of time in that area, and only establishing residency so that they could run for office. Uh, so there's a, there's a deeper history, but if you want to see that, you can go ahead and search for it to search the term carpetbagger. All right. Um, so... You know, he is professing to be a conservative and he's largely concentrated his interviews with conservative media outlets. Uh, he's working to establish his bona fides uh, through uh, where he is appearing. Um, but according to this article from AP, um, you know, he is using his showmanship uh, to outflank his Republican opponents, um, you know, and <laughs> for example, he is taking a page out of former President Trump's playbook, uh, and, you know, he has uh, gone different from how his rivals are going. His rivals boast about endorsements. Um, Oz is generating coverage by challenging Dr. Fauci to a televised debate. And, you know, and quote, he said, doctor to doctor, close quote, he said. Um, you know, he has skipped candidate forums. He is apparently looking for bigger stages, getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and spe speaking at this week's conservative political action conference uh, or in Florida, which by the time this airs will have been last week. Um, you know, by all accounts, this is being effective. He's leading polls, although public polling is scant and the rest is internal campaign polling. Uh, one other little piece, he's also wealthy. Uh, there's no real um, number as to what his wealth is. However, he did tell a, uh, a, a talk show audience that he put $10 million of his own money uh, into a race that features multi-million dollar TV smackdown between him and former hedge fund CEO David McCormick and a McCormick-aligned super PAC that's fueled by Wall Street cash. So, 
you know, it, it it's it's a new face, same game. Uh, it's one we've seen before, and you know, it, it's it's long on hype, short on issues, and you know, I'm obviously, you know, even though I reside in Pennsylvania, I would not be voting for Mehmet Oz. Um, I don't think that he is well-versed enough in the the business and the politics and the people of Pennsylvania to be, you know, effective. And I'm not willing to gamble on his learning curve uh, and in figuring out what makes Pennsylvania tick so that he can be an effective senator and represent all of us, Republican, Democrat, and Independent alike, as he is supposed to. Uh, I think... You know, in, in my opinion, let me repeat that, in my opinion, I think Mehmet Oz represents one of the, po- the problems that our political system faces in that we are judging our leaders based on popularity rather than capability. You know, now Mehmet Oz is a heart surgeon. That's a highly skilled profession not saying that he's not uh, highly intelligent and highly talented. But as I said, he has not lived in, in the state of Pennsylvania for a long time. And, you know, he cannot be, you know, e- effectively understanding of the issues here in Pennsylvania. You know, I moved to Pennsylvania, uh, what, almost 15 years ago. And, you know, I have been engaged in my community and what goes on. So it it takes time. It takes, you know, effort to build that rep, to build those bona fides, to build that understanding of uh, what goes on in a state you seek to represent. And I don't think that Mehmet Oz has put in that, uh, that time and that effort. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, He's unelectable. I'm not saying that, you know, he's he's, you know, the best candidate in in the race or the worst candidate in the race. All I'm saying is we need to be really careful about who we elect to high public office uh, and popularity really should not be at the top of that list. That is my ultimate position. So. I'll leave that there. Uh, you know, definitely go to his websites and check out uh, candidate Mehmet Oz. Uh, see what you think, and if you've got a different opinion, you know, call it out. Send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, Dr. Oz as a state senator. So, you know, let let let's get a dialogue going. On that, on any of the topics that we've talked about today. All right. Uh, in the few minutes we have remaining, uh, this will, this is the uh, show that will conclude Black History Month. And I, I feel that I need to make some comments regarding Black History Month 2022 from the, the perspective of uh, political act advocacy and political activism, one of the things that I have noticed over the past few years is 
that um, Black History Month in particular, but the, the months and holidays that focus on uh, ethnicity in this country have drawn an equal amount of fire in opposition as they have in favor uh, going forward. So, you know, we, we need to come together as a country. We need to understand that, you know, what certain groups uh, uh, of Americans would like to see this country be, notwithstanding, we are a multicultural society. We are a melting pot of uh, people and ethnicities and races and, you know, all kinds of uh, traits and backgrounds and so forth that have come together in this one place to create a, a representative democracy to, to, to serve as that beacon of light to the rest of the world. Now, you know, if you know, what we've seen in the past years is a tendency toward this, this notion of uh, white exceptionalism, uh, of one race being above the others. And we need to work through understanding and through partnership and through reaching out and educating and communicating with everyone, you know, what makes this country truly great. And it is not one group over another group. It is not one ethnicity uh, ahead of another ethnicity. It's all of us coming together, working as one team to advance our common goals, our common needs, and the common good. And I think, you know, as we proceed through the year, we have other ethnic holidays and other group holidays coming up where we will look at, you know, Italians and Spanish and Mexican and, uh, you know, all sorts of, of groups that have days, weeks, and, and months dedicated to them. I urge you to, to immerse yourself in those cultures during those times and beyond so that you can learn perhaps better what America is all about, you know, what we are and where our real strength comes from. And it comes from our people, it comes from our combined cultures, and it, it comes from, just as the, the saying says on our currency and, and other places, from many, one. We need to get back to the unity of America. Uh, the message of America needs to be that unity and that strength. And you know, that's, that's my, my soapbox and feeling for this week, for this episode. Uh, everybody, thank you for, for downloading. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to hear more, you can find us on Google Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and of course, on the WJMSRadio.com website. Uh, the link is there to our show as well as the other media content from WJMS Media. Please take an opportunity to check us out. Uh, we welcome your feedback. 
if you'd like to communicate to the show, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. That's firedupradio at yahoo.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I look forward to sending another episode winging out your way in seven days. Take care, everybody. Stay safe.